Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Welcome back to TanakhStudy.com. Today's section in Parshat Pinchas is the natural continuation of our discussion last time. Last time we considered the census of the tribes of Israel as they prepare to enter the land, to conquer it, and to distribute it, and today's section will introduce details that complete that topic. Our section today is chapter 26, verse 52, through chapter 27, verse 11, and consists of three smaller units. The first unit, verses 52 through 56, indicates that when the land is distributed, it will be done as a function of population size. Those that are more will receive more land, those that are less will receive less, and all of this will be done according to lottery or the goral. The second unit, verses 57 through 65, introduces the census of the tribe of Levi, which is concisely reported, and the third subunit, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, introduces us to the daughters of Tzilofchad, who themselves will make a claim to possess land in Canaan, in spite of the fact that their father Tzilofchad had no sons but only daughters. The story of the daughters of Tzilofchad can be further subdivided their claim in verses 1 through 5 and 6 through 11, which is the divine response to their claim in the affirmative. Cain benot tzilofchad dovarot. Yes, truly, the daughters of tzilofchad have spoken and they will be granted possession in the land. We might say that the larger theme animating all of this material is the preparations of the people of Israel for entering the land and for possessing it and the anticipation of that fact. So this is true of the tribes in general, which is to say the census that we spoke about last time and the idea that the land will be distributed according to population. This is true of the Levites in particular mentioned in our section today who will themselves receive a portion of land, although it will not be a tribal territory, but only scattered cities throughout the length and breadth of the land. And finally, the special case of Benot Tzilofchad, which reinforces the idea of anticipation and expectation and hopes for the future. We begin our reading with verse number 53. Sorry, verse number 52. God spoke to Moshe, saying, To these enumerated previously, the land will be divided according to Nachala territory by number of names. Verse 54. Larav Tarbe Nachalato. 
ולמעט תמעיט נחלתו, איש לפי פקודיו יותן נחלתו. To the many you shall increase their possession, and to the few you shall make their possession less. Each man, according to his number, will be given his possession. Rashi indicates when the verse reports in 53, to these will the land be distributed. It doesn't just refer to the names of the families mentioned previously, but also to their age, which is to say, in order to receive a possession of land, one had to be 20 years of age and above at the moment of the second census. The very same age that obligates one to be part of the armed forces is, this, is the age at which one is able to possess land. Rashi says, the actual conquest of the land and the distribution of the land actually took quite a few years. According to the rabbinic tradition, Yehoshua enters the land and seven years of war ensue, the wars of conquest, and a further seven years are needed in order to distribute and allocate the territory to all the tribes. Rashi indicates if there is someone at this point in our story, at the moment of the census, who is under 20 years old, but by the time the land is distributed, will in fact be 20 years old, that individual will nevertheless not receive their own possession of land in Canaan. That is the implication of the word in, in verse number 53, La to these will the land be distributed, i.e. the ones that we speak of right now who are 20 years old at this moment. Verse number 54, which spoke about the idea that those that are many receive more and those that are few receive less, actually is the subject of a disagreement among the Rishonim. Rashi understands the reference to the many and the few to be to the tribes, which is to say, a larger tribe received more territory in Canaan, a smaller tribe received less. Rashi qualifies his statement by saying that area could be offset by quality, which is to say, a larger tribe receives more, a smaller tribe receives less, but more and less are not necessarily expressed in square kilometers, but rather in higher and lower quality. But in any case, says Rashi, the more numerous tribes, such as Yehuda, would receive a larger portion than the, the smaller tribes. This is Rashi's view. The Ramban disagrees. He actually says that all the tribes receive a portion of land that is exactly the same area. 
the land is distributed, in other words, into 12 equal portions. When the text says in verse 54 that those that are numerous receive more and those that are fewer receive less, it does not refer to the tribes themselves, but rather to the families and the clans with each one of the tribes. In other words, each tribe receives exactly the same amount of land. A tribe with a larger population would have to distribute that land into smaller portions. A tribe with a smaller population would distribute the land into larger portions. So for the Ramban, each tribe receives exactly the same amount, and the many and the few is a reference to the families of the clans and the clans that comprise the tribe. The Sephorno presents us with an intermediate view, somewhat of a compromise between Rashi and the Ramban. And he says, like Ramban, that the land is divided into 12 equal portions. Each tribe receives an equal portion. But like Rashi, Sephorno says, equal here does not refer to acreage, to square kilometers, but rather to quality. In other words, for the Sforno, it is the case that a larger tribe received more land, but that more land actually was constituted of lesser quality land. A small tribe received less land, but that less land was actually of a higher quality. So while one might speak about some sort of an equality between the tribes, that was not expressed as a function of how much land they received, but rather what quality the land was. For example, Yehuda, the largest tribe, received a very large area, the largest area of any tribe, but most of it was not arable the southern stretches of the Negev and the deserts that extend beyond. Yisachar received a very small area, but that small area was extremely fertile, located as, located as it was in Amek Yisrael, not far from the Sea of the Galilee from the Kinneret. So the Sforno effectively argues it is the case that the tribes receive exactly, exactly equal portions, but equal here is not a function of how much land you receive, but rather a function of what quality that land is. We continue with verse 55. Ach begoral yechaleket ha'aretz lishmot matot avotam yinchalu. But by lottery will the land be divided, according to the names of their tribal clans they will possess it. Verse 56, According to the lottery will his possession be divided, whether much or whether little. The idea of the goral, the lottery, 
means that the land is distributed not by some sort of a declaration but by some sort of an indication the rabbis understand that effectively what took place was that 12 slips were prepared each one containing one of the tribal names and 12 additional slips were prepared each one delineating geographical boundaries. Elazar HaKohen presided over the lottery, dressed in his priestly garments. Each tribal elder would extract two slips. One slip would confirm the name of the tribe of which he was the chieftain, and the second slip would designate the geographical boundary that he received. Chazal add that actually Elazar announces the results of the lottery ahead of time. So effectively, the lottery in this context functions as a divinely ordained confirmation, as if to say, each tribe receives its territory not as a function of blind chance or serendipity, not as a function of some sort of power politics and maneuvering, but solely as a function of the divine will. For Rashi and for Ramban, who both understand that tribal size plays a role in determining tribal territory. The point of the lottery is to indicate where in the land the tribes will be settled. This is especially the case for the Ramban. If the, the land is divided into 12 equal portions in size, the lottery determines only where each tribe ultimately ends up in the geographical scheme. The Midrash adds a flourish when the text says that the land is distributed al pi hagoral by way of the lottery, by way of the lottery, literally what it means is al pi hagoral by the mouth or the word of the goral. And in this Midrashic image, Hagoral atzmo hayatsoveach veomer, it's as if the lottery itself would cry out and say, I, the lottery, have determined that I belong to territory such and such and tribe such and such. Clearly, in this Midrashic image and in the Torah itself, the purpose of the goral, of distributing the land according to lottery, is to head off conflicts and disagreements, arguments and confrontations, as if to say, ultimately, it is God who will determine where each tribe will necessarily settle, and that represents the best possible outcome for everyone. We might point out that we find the goral or the lottery employed in other places in Tanakh, 
often with a similar effect. The Goral is mentioned in the Torah, in the matter of the scapegoat of Yom Kippur, Vayikra chapter 16, Goral Echad Lashem, Vigoral Echad Laazazel, where the lottery will determine which goat will be sacrificed to God and which goat will be driven out to the wilderness. Achan, in Sefer Yehoshua chapter 7, who took from the spoils of Yericho, is singled out for punishment by a lottery-like process, although the word goral doesn't explicitly occur in the context, and Shaul is chosen as the king of Israel, once again through a process resembling the lottery that the rabbis describe in our text. More explicit goralot occur in the story of Jonah, where Jonah boards the ship in an attempt to escape to Tarshish, but is found out by the sailors through a lottery, and Haman, perhaps most famously, who casts lots in order to determine the most auspicious day for the destruction of the Jewish people in Megillat Esther. In all of these contexts, the Goral once again indicates the divine will, and even in the story of Haman, little does he know that the day he believes is most propitious for destruction of the people of Israel will actually be the day of their salvation. Which is to say, once again, the goral, as it were, is an expression of divine will and divine confirmation. So in our context, the necessity of the goral in order to determine which territory goes to which clan or to which tribe, once again, to highlight the fact that this is an expression of God's will and nothing else. We, be, we continue with verse number 57. And these are the countings of the tribe of Levi according to their families. To Gershon, the clan of the Gershuni, Kehat, the clan of the Kehati, Mirari, the clan of Mirari. Verse 58. Ele Mishpachot Levi, Mishpachat Halivni, Mishpachat Hevroni, Mishpachat Hamachli, Mishpachat Hamushi, Mishpachat Hakorhi, Ukehat, Holid et Amram. These are the clans of Levi the clan of the Livni, the clan of the Chevroni, the clan of the Machli, the clan of the Mushi, the clan of the Korchi, and Kehat, who begat Amram. V'shem eshet Amram yochevet bat Levi asher yalda ota lelevi b'mitzrayim. V'teded le'amram et Aharon v'et Moshe v'et Miriam achutam. The name of the wife of Amram was Yocheved, the daughter of Levi. She was born to Levi in Egypt, and she bore to Amram, Aharon, and Moshe, and Miriam, their sister. To Aharon were born Nadav and Avihu, Elazar and Itamar, 
וימות נדב ואביהו בהקריבם אש זרה לפני אדוני. נדב ונביהו died when they offered strange fire before God. Verse number 62. ויהיו פקודיהם שלושה ועשרים אלף, כל זכר מבין חודש ומעלה, כי לא הותפקדו בתוך בני ישראל, כי לא ניתן להם נחלה בתוך בני ישראל. Their numbers were 23,000. This was comprised of all the males from one month and above, because they were not counted among the people of Israel, because they were not given a territory among the people of Israel. We note that in the census of the Levites, some of the families mentioned at the time of Yitziat Mitzrayim, at the beginning of Sefer Shmot, are not mentioned in this census. They are no more. Unlike the tribes and the census that was recorded earlier, all of the names that are mentioned in the census of the Levites are the same as ones that were mentioned before. Whereas we saw when we mentioned the, the families or the clans of the tribes of Israel, sometimes they were mentioned with variations. We note, of course, that in this census, there are 23,000 Levites that are counted above the age of one month. In the original census of the Levites, at the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar, chapter 3, verses 39, 22,300 Levites were counted. So remarkably, in spite of the fact that 38 years have passed, between these two censuses, the number of Levites has increased by only 700. And Ibn Ezra says, this is of course remarkable and astonishing because we have a tradition which is reinforced by the text that the decree concerning the spies did not apply to the Levites. In the aftermath of the sin of the spies, the people of Israel were condemned to perish in the wilderness. Anyone who was 20 years old and above at that time was condemned to die. The rabbis teach us that that particular decree did not apply to the Levites. Ibn Ezra says the proof of that tradition is that Elazar HaKohen is very much alive even though it's quite clear that at the time of the sin of the spies, he must have been older than 20 years old. And yet he survives. So this is an indication, says Ibn Ezra, that the rabbinic tradition concerning the Levites is true. The decree of destruction did not apply to them. How is it then, asks Ibn Ezra, that in 38 intervening years, the tribe of Levi only increases by 700 people? He leaves the question unanswered. The Chizkuni offers an answer which the rabbis themselves already introduce, although not in this particular context. And he says, this very much proves that Ha'aron haya mechalebahem, which is to say, the holy work that the Levites did in the Mishkan, because it was so sacred, and so grave, what that meant was that 
the ark, as it were, consume them. Being involved in such holy work and such close proximity to the divine took its toll. And the natural increase which would otherwise have been expected did not take place. We might answer in a more simple vein. The reason why the Levites are roughly the same number as they were at the beginning of the book is the same reason for the Israelites being roughly the same number as they were at the beginning of the book, i.e. it reinforces the theme of succession with the new generation replacing the old. So just as the tribes of Israel are replaced by their children, so the Levites are replaced by their children. Just as the tribes of Israel roughly number the same amount as they did at the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar, so to the Levites roughly number the same amount that they were at the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar. Both of these facts reinforcing each other and reinforcing the larger theme. This is the story of the succession of the new generation succeeding their elders and entering the land of Israel. This will now be reinforced by what follows. Chapter 27, verse 1. The daughters of Tzilofchad, the son of Chefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Menashe, from the, from the families of Menashe, the son of Yosef, came close with their claim. And this is the name of his daughters, Machla and Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Tirzah. They stood before Moshe and before Elazar the priest and before the elders and all of the congregations at the, ent at the entrance to the tent of meeting and they said, verse number three, Avinu meit bamidbar, ba'adat korach. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the congregation that gathered against God with the congregation of Korach. He died by his own transgression, and he had no sons. Why should our father's name be deficient from among his clan just because he has no son? Give us a possession among the brothers of our father. Verse number five, Moshe brought their claim before God. The daughters of Tzolofchad are very bold indeed to press their case. We note how they present it before all of the important personages of the congregation, before Moshe and Elazar, the tribal elders, and all of the people. They are courageous. 
and they take initiative. Rabbi Yoni Grossman points out that embedded in their very names is an idea of courage, of boldness, and of initiative. The five daughters, Machla, Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Tirza, all contain roots or stems which pertain to movement and to dynam dynamism. Machla means machal, which is to dance. Noah means literally to move. Chogla has the stem chag, which means to make a circuit. Milka has the word lech in it, which means to go. Tirza has the stem ratz, which means to run. The Torah is trying to emphasize to us how much courage these young women had, how, man, how much initiative they took, and how dynamic they are in pressing their claim. When they say, why should our father be deficient, lama yigara shemavinu in verse number four, this of course recalls an earlier episode in the book, Parshat Baha Lotcha, when the people of Israel are told to celebrate the Pesach, and there are those which are unfit to do so because of ritual defilement. At that time, those people who are ritually unfit to fulfill the Pesach approach Moshe and they make a claim. Lama nigara levilti hakriv et korban adunai b'moado betoch b'nei Yisrael. Why should we be left out or excluded? Such that we cannot offer the sacrifice of God in its time among the congregation of Israel. Both cases effectively highlight a similar idea. Good people, God-fearing people, who are excluded from the community at a critical juncture through no fault of their own. In both situations, they present their case to Moshe. In both situations, there is an uncertainty because of a technical requirement. They're unfit to offer the Pesach. They're daughters and they are not sons. But that technical requirement creates a moral injustice of them being excluded from the community though they bear no blame. In both situations, Moshe presents their case before God, and in both situations, there is a divine righting of the wrong and a resolution. Cain benot slofchad dovrot, verse number six, God spoke to Moshe and he said, truly, correctly have the daughters of Tzolofchad spoken, Naton titen lahem achuzat nachala betoch achei avihem, v'ha'avarta et nachalat avihen lahen. You will surely give them a possession of land among the brothers of their father, and you will transfer their father's possession to them. V'albenei Yisrael tedaber lemor ish ki amut uven en lo v'ha'avartem et nachalato levito. To the people of Israel you shall speak and you shall say, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his possession to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall transfer his possession to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall give his possession 
to the brothers of his father. And if there are no brothers to the father, then you shall transfer the possession to the relative which is as close to him from his clan as there is, and he shall possess it. This shall be for the people of Israel a statute of law as God commanded Moshe. So effectively, the Torah says, Tzlofchad has no sons, his possession passes to his daughters. If he would have had no daughters, it would have passed to his brothers. If he would have had no brothers, it would have passed to his paternal brothers. If he would have had no paternal brothers, it would have passed to the next relative that remains. Essentially though, for the purposes of our discussion, Benot Tzolofchad emphasized the idea of possession of land and the great desire that they have to be part of that process. Our story in Sefer Bimidbar isn't just about the dry technical facts, the census, the numbers, but rather about the deep desire on the part of the people of Israel to enter the land and to possess it and to fulfill their God-given mission. And effectively, to conclude this discussion with the daughters of Tzilofchad reinforces the theme. The daughters of Tzilofchad step forward. They will not be refused because at the end of the day, what they desire more than anything else is to possess land in the land of Israel. Rashi quotes a Midrash, which is intrigued by the fact that when the daughters of Tzilofchad are introduced, their lineage is traced all the way back to Yosef. The daughters of Tzilofchad, who was the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Menasheh, the son of Yosef. Why is Yosef mentioned in this particular context? Rashi quoting Chazal indicates to us, because Yosef was the paradigm for those that love the land. What did Yosef tell his brethren on the eve of his death? I will die, do not leave my bones in Egypt, but take them with you to the land. Just as Yosef indicated that he loved the land of Israel and wished nothing more than to possess it, so too his daughters now indicate that they are cut from the same cloth. In spite of the fact that technically speaking, they should not possess land because they are daughters rather than sons, they press their claim because that is an expression of their deep love for the land of Israel. And God responds in kind. Cain benot tzilofchad dovrot. The daughters of Tzilofchad have spoken well.